invite you to turn in God's Word to James chapter 4 this evening. We'll be looking at various passages, but we'll open to James 4 in a few moments as we look at the last commandment, the 10th commandment tonight, you shall not covet your neighbor's, or you shall not covet, that is your neighbor's wife, shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, that from the summary found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll be looking at Lord's Day 44, also in the back of the the hymnal, Lord's Day 44, page 893. considering the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. It seems to be quite an anticlimactic statement after we've looked at the commands uh, not to murder, not to steal, not to commit adultery. It seems rather uh, anticlimactic to say you shall not covet. We say, wow, that, that, that seems uh, like that one should have come a little earlier and then we build to the more serious Matters, And yet what we want to see tonight as we begin looking in God's Word at James chapter 4 is that all of these sins come from that desire within. This is the root of those sins. This is where we, we, we see uh, the source of our uh, hatred, which is murder, our lust, which is adultery, and so forth and so on. But look at James chapter 4 this evening as we, uh, as we hear God's teaching to us as it pertains to the law. This is God's word, James 4, just the first two verses. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Or in the original, what quarrels, what causes are there? And why are they there? That's added so that we understand it's a question. What is it that's the source of that? Is it not this, that your passions, your pleasures, the word there is um, hedonos, I believe, for, from the word we get, from which we get our word hedonism, pleasure, what are your, your pleasures are at war within you? What pleases you? What desires you have? There's, there's a mixture of desire in you. You desire and do not have So you murder. It is the desire which is the source of that. You desire, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Just just that thought as we open this evening, what is the the source of this murderous act? What is the source of the fights and the quarrels among you? Is it not that, that sinful desire? Wanting something that isn't yours or wanting something that someone else has. We may not lash out at others. We may not lash out at God, at least in an outward sense. But sinful desire is what causes our discontent. It is, the, it is what's present in our hearts. We talk to ourselves and we say, I wish I had what they had. I, I wish I had that person's money. That person's talent. I wish I was receiving the praise that that person is receiving. I would do anything for that. We might not say that, but our efforts, our energies are, are, are showing that that's exactly what we would do. We, we, we think about it. We ponder it. We, we sit and, and meditate upon this. 
Not upon God's will for our lives, not upon what he's wanting us to do, how he wants us to grow, as we'll see uh, later in the sermon this evening, but rather, how can I get what that other person has? I asked a question this morning in high, in high school catechism class, what, what desires do you have? What do you think about? What, what, as you're in, in high school, and, and we were all there once, what is it that we think about? And, oh, money, well, I have money. Um, what kind of a job will I get? What college am I going to go to? Um, how am I, gonna, how am I going to, to, to be prepared for the future? And, and what we see there is that our, our concern is that we, are, we have to take care of the future and that, that it's up to us to, to determine the outcome and where we go. And our, our desire isn't to think about the character that God wants to develop, the virtue that God wants to develop, so much as We've got to get that right position, that right place, uh, and then everything will be fine. Then I won't have any more problem with coveting. <laughs> well, we know that's not true. Those of us who are older and have come through that stage in life, we say, oh, it's still there. It's still there. That, that looking, that yearning for something which doesn't, uh, that isn't ours, that someone else has that we wish we had. Sometimes we tell ourselves that life's not fair. We would be content if God would just give us this. Or it's not, he's asking me to do something that, that I am not uh, able to do. And that, by definition in, in, in the Bible, is true. We can't do what God calls us to, but he promises to give us all grace sufficient to do what he calls us to do. And yet instead, we'd rather say, well, I'd rather not have to go through that. I'd rather be able to be in charge and control what things I go through and what things I don't have to go through. We desire to be in a different situation. We desire to be in a different place. We desire to be in a different job. And all of that points to the fact that we're, we're, we're not content with what the Lord has done. We're not confident that He knows best. And so our solution is to turn away from him in our darkest moments, in our greatest uh, frustration, rather than to him. Let's read these questions and answers responsively this evening. I think we, we, we do well to hear these words as we're, as we're speaking then. I'm going to read question 113, 114, 115, and we'll do these responsively. Question 113 asks, what is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? We answer together that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Question 114, but can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? We answer together, no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. Question 115. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? We answer, first, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins 
and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. There's not a single commandment of God that is burdensome. There is not a single word of God that is hurtful to us. Oh, it might hurt our pride. It might damage our uh, sense of wellness uh, in our own estimation. But God does not speak a word to, to destroy us. does not speak a word to lead us down the path of destruction. His word is for life. His his call is for us to examine our hearts as we've been been urged to do that this morning as we prepare for Lord's Supper this coming Sunday to examine our hearts, to to consider what is it that is my heart's desire? Where is it that my joy and my praise and my worship goes? Is it it vertical or is it it more me looking for that self-adulation, that praise to myself? I can think of daily desires uh, Daily instances, rather, where we don't desire what God commands or sets before us. Our, and therefore, we, then we start to, there's these quarrels that James talks about, these fights that, that arise in our, mind, in, in our minds and our hearts, which leads to our murderous thoughts, to our covetousness. That was really what was put before Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan said to them that uh, the Lord is keeping something from you that's essential to you. There are no limits. You, you, you shouldn't be limited by God. He's afraid you're going to be equal to him, like unto him, that if you uh, would eat of that tree, you will become like God. And ever since that decision, that desire for that, we want to be God, not just alongside of him, but God determining our own path. Our sinful nature is to want what we don't have. I think about it in a, in a very positive sense. I was uh, challenged by that this week. Um, I was listening to someone speak about limits. God gives us limits. God reminds us of our finitude to remind us that we're not God, that we don't know what we need. The combination of our finitude and of our sinful wants and desires leads us, in fact, away from what we most need, away from what God would most want to develop in us. He reminds us that we need Him to guide us. If there's any age that's bombarded by, uh, by coveting or, or, or is bombarded by the temptation to covet, it's surely this one. There are so many uh, things given shot at us every day with little uh, short bursts that we try to just keep distracted and we're convinced that we would be, we'd only be content if, if, just, if we just got that one more thing or if we just got that new uh, release of that, of that particular uh, product. We're convinced that uh, we must live the life that others lead. We're told that limitless pleasure 
will bring happiness. Absolute equality among people will bring the yearned for satisfaction. We're convinced that um, if we just had what others have, or that, that position, that money, whatever it is, then we would find contentment. Now, before we go too far on the matter of desires, we recognize that God has given us desires. He's given us a certain drive. Our desire for food reminds us to eat. Our desire to do something useful motivates us to work. Our desire for friendship draws us into community. But like everything else, our desires are are corrupted by sin. They take over. Phil Riken, on this, in his commentary on this commandment, says this, Coveting is what causes that little twinge when someone has what we want. We're always comparing ourselves to others, and we hardly notice or won't recognize that our frustration when others are celebrating is this, we want what they have. Instead of celebrating with their accomplishments and their achievements, we want what they have. So when Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, we must pray for ears to hear. Against all sinful desire, against all wanting that which God has not given to us. Or to want to take from what others are receiving. That we too would be noticed. Covetousness is ugly, it's deadly. Our desires left unchecked can drag us down into sin, as James says. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Whether that's with others or whether that's with God, it's that that sinful desire. I want what I haven't been given, and we then fight and quarrel with God. And God says that's what leads to all of the other, or that, that's what's at the, at the root of what's, what's uh, at the sins of the first table of the law and the second table, our sins against God and against our fellow man. The covetous heart says, I, I've got to have what she, he or she has. Without it, I can't live. James says earlier in chapter one, our desires left unchecked can drag us down and indeed, when full grown, give birth to sin, and then to death, to death. And we must not then forget that we need the Lord's guidance and direction to determine what it is we need to change, where the change needs to take place. It's not in our circumstance, it's not in what we have materially, but rather, what is it that God is trying to teach us concerning our relationship to him? The man who had his son convulsing with that demon came to Jesus and said, the, the, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. I, can't, would you heal him or are you able to heal him? And Jesus says, can I? Am I able? Indeed, he says, I am. And the father says, and he says, you only need to believe. And the father says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's at the root of that desire. Lord, I do believe what you, what you have for me is what's best for me, but I, I, I wrestle with that and I fight against that every day. What is it that's, that's causing me not to see clearly and not to desire what is best? We live alongside of others who have things that we 
possess that, or that, they, that they have that we would desire to possess. Uh, a case study in unholy desire is found in 1 Kings 21. And you can turn there. I'm going to be looking at those verses. 1 Kings 21, where Ahab as a king in Israel, and he has, he's a rich king, he's a, he, he has so much uh, at, at, his, at his disposal, and yet there's one thing that he doesn't uh, possess, and that is uh, a right relationship with the Lord. He's a wicked king. Listen to the description of what's going on there in 1 Kings 21. It speaks of the king and his uh, neighbor, king, you remember, is supposed to be setting example for the nation. He's supposed to show the nation how the people of God are to live before God. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city The elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless man brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. James 4 says, those desires lead to murder, lead to lies, to all manner of wickedness. Ahab is example before us. He was most wicked of a long line of kings. Chapter 16, verses 30 to 33 in, in 1 Kings says that he, uh, even in that line where Omri was present and other kings, he was even more wicked than they. He lived by his desires, not by the commands of the Lord. His passions, his lust led to murder, to bearing false witness, to destructive behavior. 
What was going on here? Well, Naboth's vineyard is next to Ahab's. He sees it each day and he says, wow, what a, what a wonderful piece of ground that would be to have. I, I have acres and acres and I have many uh, vineyards, but I want this one too. And so it seems rather innocent. He says, I'll uh, give me your vineyard and I'll give you a better one and, and, and I'll give you its value in money. It seems innocent enough except that God makes clear in verse 3 what's going on. This was an inheritance given to Naboth, and the Old Testament law said that, uh, th- that the Israelites were not to give away their inheritance to another. They were not to, particularly with land, sell it to another, not even to the king. And so Naboth, who was one who served uh, the Lord said, rather than getting money for the land and another vineyard, which seemed like a pretty good deal if you think about it, said, no, I, I won't, because that would be to stand over against God. That would be to, to discount what God has given to me and to want what doesn't uh, rightfully belong to me. Ahab, on the other hand, is one who says, I want not only what God has given, but also what my neighbor has. I am not content. F.B. Meyer sets it out for us quite well in his commentary when he says this about Ahab's sulking. He says, In the room of the palace, Ahab, king of Israel, lies upon his couch, his face towards the wall, refusing to eat. What has taken place? What's so traumatic that it's led the king of Israel to be acting this way? Has disaster befallen the royal arms? Have the priests of Baal been again massacred? Is his royal consort dead? No, the soldiers are still Flushed with their recent victories over Syria, the worship of Baal had quite recovered from the terrible disaster of Mount Carmel. Jezebel, resolute, crafty, cruel, and beautiful, is now standing by his side, anxiously seeking the cause of his sadness. Ahab had no reason for sadness. Well, we might say there was problems with the renewed Baal worship, but, but everything seemed to be coming back together. Everything that seemed to be in disarray was now being restored, and, and yet he was not content. He wanted what was not his to have and more. He wanted Naboth dead. What did Ahab need? Did he need another vineyard? No, what he needed was godliness with contentment. In that is great gain. That is a blessing from the Lord. Development of godly character, a display of godly virtue. When our hearts do not receive from the Lord thankfully, but we instead covet what someone else has, we quickly become vexed in our hearts. We become sullen, even as Ahab. We think of others who can speak better, learn better, look better. They have possessions that we wish we had. They have a bigger church, a happier family, a secure job. The passion of envy begins to rise, and we lose sight of what God has given. And soon, what comes to life is what should be put to death. Envy, covetousness. It's ironic that the way this story is set before us, because Jezebel says, I'll get you what you, what you want. I'll, I'll play that role if you, just, if you just go along with the plan. I'll get a bunch of elders and leaders from the town, and I'll have them stand before uh, uh, the people and, and, 
bear false witness about Naboth. He'll be stoned and it'll all be over. And it says, and, and, and that's exactly what happened. Ahab sat back and said, well, I'm going to let her do her work and I'll get what I want. His desire created this, this, this path that led to murder, bearing false witness. And it said that, verses 15 and 16, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Just think about those words for a moment. Naboth, who's dead here? Who's, who's, who's playing that part? Well, Naboth certainly is no longer in the land of the living. He's been stoned, and he's dead. But what is Ahab? What happens to Ahab? He arises in the midst of this wickedness and goes forth to continue on this path of death, of destruction, of sinful desire. Opportunity, or obstacles removed, opportunity provided, and the covetous heart doesn't ask questions. It only jumps at the opportunity. This commandment, this 10th commandment, reminds us again of how we need to examine our hearts. Martin Luther says this of the 10th commandment, this last commandment is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended outwardly against the preceding commandments. Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees so often, they would say things, well, we've never done that. And Jesus will then goes a step further and says, examine your hearts. Consider what your thoughts are. I speak truth to you, and yet you desire that I be put to death. Ahab's downfall starts with his covetousness. That's where sin begins. I could do better. I deserve more. This isn't fair. Some of the most successful we would say surprisingly deal with this. But we ought not to be surprised, should we? We know our own hearts. I was reading just this week in a news magazine of an athlete who has had tremendous success. And if only this athlete had more access to money and to, uh, to better training and, and uh, the ability to extend uh, her career, she says, I would certainly have been the best. She's already at the top of her game. She has almost every record, and yet she wants more praise. She wants, she's not satisfied with not being at the top with everyone looking up to her. And we say, why, why, why are you not rejoicing and, and, and delighting in your success? Because I want more. I want that praise. I don't want to be compared with anyone. I want to have no peer. I want to have no one alongside of me. When my sport is talked about, I want to be the only one that is mentioned as the best. Well, 
when we act that way, when we think that way, in the midst of great blessing, as we heard in Psalm 30 tonight, God provides great blessing and deliverance. We ought to be praising God and thanking Him, not looking to prosperity, thinking there we would find security, but rather wanting relationship with the Lord to be built up. These uh, questions and answers are very uh, helpful to us. It's God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment. Not even the slightest desire or thought, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. These are absolutes. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin. The old translation used the first person pronoun, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. Pursuing all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No, in this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. What's the the catechism writer saying here? He's saying that that we have to grab hold of our desires. We have to grab hold of of what is our our goal? What what do we see God's uh, purpose for us? What does Jesus pray in John 17 in the high priestly prayer? He prays what? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He doesn't say make them into an empire, make them to be the greatest so that no one ever forgets their name and, and always speaks highly of all of, their, uh, of their, their glorious accomplishments. The Bible sets before us all of their warts and all of their, all of their failures and reminds us that, it, that our goal, the, the, the life of the believer, is to point forward to Jesus Christ. To make much of him, to follow after him. As he says, as I have come to do your will, so too sanctify the disciples, these my followers, that they too will do your will. Not desirous of the praise of men or pursuit of these matters. The pursuit of the things of the world. You see, we have to understand that God gives us all that we need. He gives differently. He gives in different measure. He gives at different times, but he gives us all that we need, such that we ought not to, we we need not desire anything that we do not at present have. Oh, yes, we should pray. We should pray, and Jesus teaches us how to pray. Your will be done, O Lord, in our lives. Show us what we truly need, not more material things, but greater passion and desire for you, a greater love for you. Since no one in this life, question 115, can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature, to know that we, we, we aren't living in the way that God would have us to live. He's created us to live for Him, and instead we want to live for ourselves and our paths. And then, thus more eagerly to seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. To focus there. Paul, the great uh, law keeper, could then could say upon his uh, conversion that his passion, his delight was elsewhere. 
He said, I'm looking not to myself for praise, but to, the, to God and for his provision. Verse 21 of Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But there's no distinction. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul noted when he heard, when when he read the law and thought about the law, when it said, do not covet, he realized that though he had kept external adherence, that his heart was covetous and was desirous for praise and for accolades and for achievement. That he could somehow come to God and, and bring his own efforts and say, this is, this is what I've done for you, Lord. Now grant me the praise that is due to my name. It was only after God humbled him, declaring that he had persecuted his own son through his persecution of the church, that he realized he was taking glory from Christ. And God says, I will not share my glory with another. All our life long, we should reflect upon these commandments that we might know our sinful nature, that we might be convicted of our sin, and that we would then eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness that is offered in Christ. There is a forgiveness there. That we would never, and so that, secondly, we may never stop striving, never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. We never stop striving. Paul uses that athletic imagery in in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, one of the verses that is uh, mentioned here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, this is how we are to live. Do you not know that in a race, all the the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Live in such a way that you are pursuing God's uh, uh, commands to the fullest. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Run in such a way by the grace of the Holy Spirit, that God is foremost, that you are growing in love for him. That's what that renewal looks like, so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image. Till after this life, we reach our goal, which is perfection. Contentment is the positive side of this commandment. It's the remedy for covetous desire. Contentment means wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for ourselves. It's to be satisfied in what God gives. Chuck Swindoll says this about contentment. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. 
It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but I was, it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. When we examine our hearts, what is the song that we hear sung there? Is it contentment, or is it more along the lines of what we've just heard? Wanting that which is not given to us, and yet forgetting all that God has given to us in our stages of life that we would make much of Him. Recognizing our limits, recognizing that we are those who live for His glory and not our own. This commandment looms large at the end of the commandments, going to the heart of the issue. In the gospel, we find the source of our right relationship before God. It's not in satisfying all righteousness. Oh, Lord, if you would just have given me this, I could have satisfied it. But rather, it is to remember the forgiveness of sins that is found in Christ and the righteousness that we find in Him. And second, it is that contentment. We would, and yet, that striving after what God would have us to do and to say and to be. God is all we need. That's to be clear to us. What, he need, what we need most of all, to be more specific, is that of Jesus Christ, the one who is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God says to us, even if you don't realize it, He is all that you need. And we have our catalogs out before us saying, oh, yeah, but I really need that. Or we see someone on TV and say, boy, I really need to have that position or that place. And the Lord gathers us as his people graciously, patiently, and says, no. No, Christ is all that you need. What do you think about when you think about the future? What do I need? What am I worried about? What am I stressing about? Is it money? Is it position? Is it colleges? Is it retirement? Is it all these things? Do we quiet our hearts and our minds as we think, oh, God is a daily provider. He will give me all that I need. Indeed, he already has in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that desire is something that you have given, but desire has been polluted by sin, as with everything else in us. We pursue other things. We want other things. We covet what others have. We want to take away from them what they have. We want it to be ours. And you call us to look to you and to find you a a prodigal father, one who gives richly in excess more than we need. Lord, certainly we know that in our day and age in this land that you have provided for us so richly. 
Help us not to settle on that abundance that we have and think, oh, this will give us security. Help us not to fret about the future, thinking, oh, what if it's taken away? But help us to have a true peace in our hearts as we are content in knowing that you are our God, that you are almighty God and can accomplish all that you say you will and that you are a loving Father and therefore you desire to give us all that we need. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, in whom we have deliverance from death, that we might look forward to eternity where we will be truly content and filled with joy. May we learn that now. May we start to learn that even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.